Please turn with me to the Gospel according to John, chapter 1, verses 14 through 18. If you've been with us this month, you know we've started a new series in the Gospel of John just in time for Christmas. As you probably also notice we're <clears throat> jumping over verses uh, 6 through 13. Originally when I planned out December, I planned to preach that passage last Sunday, but we had uh, the Henrys with us, so I had to call an audible. Uh, we'll come back to that passage uh, next time uh, that I preach. But today I want us to think about the eternal word who became flesh uh, to bring uh, life and light to his people. Uh, verses 14 through 18 of John chapter 1. Let's listen closely now to <clears throat> the word of God. And the word became flesh. And dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Well, it's likely that all of us have had this experience of meeting someone and being initially really impressed People can be really impressive uh, on first meeting, whether it's their charisma, their wits, their looks, their way with words, their career, whatever it may be, people can often leave a good first impression. But then we've probably also experienced the letdown <laughs> of getting to know that individual more and quickly realizing, oh, they're actually just like the rest of us. They've got their own baggage, their own issues, their own set of weaknesses and things to work on. And the reality is that's normal. What isn't normal is to meet someone and the more you get to know them, the more you discover how perfect and wonderful that person really is. That's exactly what we have here in the Gospel of John, isn't it? John has already introduced us to the Word who was in the beginning, who was with God and who was God, through whom everything that was made was made. He has introduced us to the life and the light of men, which the darkness has not over come. But John's just getting started. And the more he has to tell us about Jesus, the more we discover how wonderful and how perfect he is. And getting to know Jesus better is what we are after this Christmas. So what I want to do this morning is I want to reflect upon six things John says about Jesus in our passage, six words or phrases that tell us more about who 
Jesus is. Uh, Those words you'll find printed in your bulletin in the sermon notes page, along with, uh, I I don't usually do this, but I put the Greek text in parentheses for you because I think you'll, you'll see as we go on that knowing a little bit of the Greek here sheds a lot of light on the passage. But but here are the words. We're going to think about flesh, dwelt, only begotten, grace and truth, grace upon grace, and the word known. Lots of ground to cover. All right, so let's hit the ground running and think, first of all, that word flesh. Right, Right at the beginning of our passage in verse 14, the word became flesh. It's probably something We have heard, some of us, hundreds of times. But what on earth does it actually mean? What is John saying when he says, the word became flesh? These are actually, he's already introduced us to the word in verse 1. And now again he's saying the word in verse 14. These are the only two occurrences of John referring to Jesus as the word. In verse 1 and verse 14. In verse 1... He introduces us to the word who preceded all of creation. The word who is with God in the beginning, through whom everything was made, and the word who is God himself. And then in verse 14, he says the word became flesh. So John, if you put those two verses together, John is very clearly saying God became man. But I think it's important to understand that John is saying much more than that with his very deliberate choice of words. It would have been surprising enough for John to simply say, God became man. And he could have said, Anthropos became Theos. Those words were readily available to him in Greek. But John goes further to say, the word became flesh. Listen to Karen Joves, commentator on the Gospel of John. She says this statement would have exploded on the page for both Jews and pagan Greeks, for it implies the paradox of the divine pre-existent word taking on perishable human form. And it's, it's interesting in the Greek text itself, you know, in English it reads, word became flesh. So there's a, a, a word between word and flesh, but in the Greek, the two are right alongside of each other. It's just <clears throat> logos, sarks. John puts them right beside each other, these two things that don't seem to go together. The word sarks underscores the, the fragility of humanity. It is used to speak of humanity in terms of, of its weakness. And this is what God became. Weak and mortal like us. The word became flesh. Flesh that, flesh that cries out when it draws its first breath. Flesh that is dependent. Flesh that undergoes all of the changes and the awkwardness of growing up. Flesh that will have to be washed. Flesh that will have to be fed. Flesh that will grow tired and weary. Flesh that can be cut and bruised and pierced and was for you and me. 
Think about it this way. A divine spirit cannot be nailed to a tree. But flesh can. And so the word became flesh. Again, put verse 1 and verse 14 right beside each other and think about the wonder of what John is saying here. The word became flesh so that the one who hung each star in its place might be hung on a cross for you. The the one who fixed the foundations of the earth in place came in our flesh to be fixed in place for you. Now, if that doesn't cause you to tremble, I don't know what will. When, when John says the word became flesh, let's be, let's be clear here. He's not saying that God the Son ceased to be God when he became man. Instead, he remained forever what he was, and he became what he was not for us. In, in other words, the, the incarnation does not involve the subtraction of deity, but rather the addition of humanity to the person of the Son. It doesn't take away from what he was, but God the Son assumes a human nature to himself so that now and forevermore, Jesus is the God-man. Now, this reveals something when you think about what does the incarnation reveal to us about God? It certainly reveals, doesn't it, that the creator cares about his creation. He doesn't, he doesn't throw it in the trash heap and destroy it. It tells us that he loves his creation so much, in fact, that the creator himself became a man in order to redeem it. Sin smashed God's good creation like a piece of pottery. But in the coming of Jesus, we see God stooping down to regather all of the broken shards, all of the broken pieces through the flesh of Christ. The creator, when when he sees the pottery smashed to pieces on the floor, he, he bends down to pick up all of the pieces, even though they cut him in order to make it whole. This takes us to the second word I want us to think about. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Some of you probably know that this is this is tabernacle language. This is the same Greek word that the root of which in the the Greek translation of the Old Testament is used over 100 times to talk about the tabernacle. Okay. Literally, the word means to pitch a tent or to tabernacle. And John is saying that this is what God did in the incarnation. He pitched his tent. He moved into our neighborhood, as it were, and he dwelt among us. And the word, why did he do this? Why did the word dwell among us? Why did God establish the tabernacle in the midst of his people In the old covenant, he established the tabernacle for the sake of fellowship, didn't he? Jesus came to tabernacle among us for the sake of fellowship, to dwell among us. 
But everything, everything the tabernacle and later the temple pointed to in the Old Testament, John is helping us understand, finds its full reality in Jesus. Jesus is the new and better tabernacle. He is the new and better dwelling place of God. The perfect embodiment of God tabernacling among his people. See, the old tabernacle was the place where atonement was made, you know, year after year after year through the blood of calves and lambs. But Jesus's body is a new and better temple where a new and better sacrifice has been made once and for all, Hebrews 10.10 says. The old tabernacle was the place God dwelled among his people, but the Son of God is God himself come to dwell among us. See, everything about the old tabernacle points to the true temple of Jesus' body. And perhaps, perhaps that is why the old tabernacle was made of skin. It's very clear, it's very clear here in verse 14 that John at length is reflecting upon the tabernacle as he talks about the word becoming flesh dwelling among us and seeing his glory. And so I think it's striking to notice that God's tabernacle, his dwelling place with man in the old covenant was in fact covered in skin. But you see, God's true tabernacle is fulfilled in Jesus who came, as it were, in our own skin. The old tabernacle was made of skin and the new tabernacle is made out of your skin and mine. See, the old, the old was, was covered in the, the skin of, of goats. Exodus 26, verse 14 says, but the new tabernacle is found in the flesh of Christ, whoever lives to make intercession for us. And how, does he, how does he intercede for us? As, as the Son in our flesh at the Father's side. And so Hebrews says we can have confidence. Hebrews 10.20. We can have confidence to draw near to God. Listen to the language it uses. We can have confidence to draw near to God by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain. That is through his flesh. That takes us to the next word. Uh, only begotten. Now, if you're reading the ESV, you might be scratching your head and asking the question, where is that in this verse? Where is only begotten in John chapter 1? Well, it's found in the phrase, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Behind the word only is the Greek word mono. Ganes, which is, it's an incredibly important word for John, an incredibly important word for the early church. And, and I, am, I am convinced that the translation only doesn't do the Greek word justice. Monogenes occurs five times in John's gospel in reference to Jesus, twice actually here in our passage. But the well, most well-known is, well, the most well-known Verse in the Bible, John three sixteen, 
and chances are many of you memorized John 3.16 in the old King James Version, so you know exactly where monogenes uh, appears. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, monogenes. But when the ESV and a lot of contemporary, newer translations translate monogenes, they simply translate it with this English word, only. And there's a long history, a long story to tell uh, regarding that, the, the translation of this word. The short version, I'll give you the condensed version, is that recent scholarship has argued that this term monogenes simply conveys the idea of, you know, one of a kind or uniqueness. But I think, I, I'm convinced John and certainly the early church saw much more significance in this word. In fact, when the divinity and the equality of the Son with the Father was questioned in the early church, monogenes is the word, one of the words the church turned to, not only to distinguish the Son from the Father, but to establish his equality with the Father. That he is very God of very God. Now coming back to you know, John, John 1.14. In, again, in the Greek, the word son isn't even there. English translations insert it for the sake of understanding to say only son. But in the Greek, John speaks of the glory of the monogenes parapater. The, 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 the only begotten from the father. Given, and given everything John has already said to us, and he will go on to say about the word who is God, we must conclude that Christ is the only natural son of the Father. That he is eternally from the Father since he was with God in the beginning and is God himself. Now this, this brings us to the important but neglected doctrine known as the eternal generation of the Son. Now, we are about to wade into the deep end of the pool, so put on your floaties and let's swim together for a few moments. We're, we're, we're doing this not out of some vain intellectual curiosity. We're, we're doing this because something really important and truly wonderful is being communicated to us here about Jesus, and we want to know him as best we can. We want to love him with our minds. The word generation means coming forth. In Trinitarian terms, it refers to the sons coming forth from the Father's essence. Eternal generation is the never-beginning and never-ending act of God the Father in communicating the divine essence to God the Son. Okay. Within the Godhead, the Father eternally generates the Son so that just as the Father has life in and of himself, so the Son has life in and of himself. And we need to be careful, qualify this. This is not, this is not some kind of movement from non-existence into existence. This is not a creative Act, but an eternal relation within God. John talks about it in terms of begottenness. The church talked about it in terms of 
eternal generation, but it's essentially the same concept. It's worth noting that the eternal begottenness of the Son is not just grounded in this one word, monogenes. The church turned to a, a host of texts to defend the eternal generation of the Son. Psalm 2-7, today I've begotten you. Proverbs chapter 8, I've possessed wisdom from of old. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, which speaks about the Messiah's going forth from of old from the days of eternity. So there's a lot of other places we could go in Scripture to think about the eternal generation of the Son. But let's stop here and let's ask the question, okay, what does the eternal generation of the Son teach us about Christ? I think the begottenness of God the Son or the eternal generation of the Son from the Father teaches us to affirm both the eternity and the equality of the Son. Right? The equality of the Son with the Father. First, in terms of eternity, there, there's no when to his begottenness. Right? There's no sometime to the Son's generation because the Son's generation, again, is not a creative act. It is an eternal and never-ending act within God. The Son never began to exist. We could say there was never a time when the Son was not. The Father has always had His Son. He became flesh, but He forever was and forever is God the Son. And so the Son is co-eternal with the Father. That's the first thing we affirm in light of Jesus being the only begotten. But the begottenness or eternal generation of the Son also ensures His equality with the Father. The eternal and unending generation of the Son is, is like human generation in that like begets like. But it is unlike human generation in that it does not produce another being. God the Father has forever and always communicated the whole divine essence to the Son. And this is the glory that the Son shared with the Father before the foundation of the world. The glory that John says he saw in the Word made flesh. Like I said, monogenes and Eternal generation are neglected ideas today. I'd, I'd be curious to know when was the last time you thought about the eternal generation of the Son? But again, for John, it's absolutely crucial. And for the early church, monogenes was a non negotiable for Christian orthodoxy. Do you recognize that? This is why we find it in the ecumenical creeds that we routinely confess together. We affirm the eternal generation of the Son every time we say the Apostles' Creed. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord. We affirm it every time we say the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in our Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten of from the Father before all ages. It has been a source of praise for the church throughout history. We sang about it last week, of the Father's love begotten before, ere before the worlds began to be. 
We sang about it this morning in O Come All Ye Faithful. This is part of the church's confession, and it's fundamental to appreciate today that it's basic to what we celebrate at Christmas. Because it reminds us that God did not create his son so that he is, you know, God-like, but not really God. The father begets the son, communicating the whole divine essence to the son without time for all eternity, so that we confess the son is begotten, not made. And it's the eternal son who shares the glory of the father who became bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh to reveal the father to us, to make him known to us. Try try to wrap your mind around this, that he makes God known because he is the radiance of his glory and the exact imprint of his nature. That is why Jesus is perfectly suited to reveal the Father to us. In the word becoming flesh, we do not have someone who is God-like or some kind of entity that is closer to God than us. We have God of God, light of light, coming down in our skin to dwell among us to reveal God to us. I mean, I want to say, can't, can't we just stop and sing right now? I'd be happy to do that, but I promised to, to give you six words, so I need to keep going. All right, we, we need to move to the next description of Jesus, which is, which is grace and truth. Jesus is full of grace and truth. I'm actually going to sneak in a seventh word here, if that's okay. Because to understand grace and truth, we have to appreciate the word fullness. Right? Verse 14, verse 16, this word fullness comes up. From his fullness, we have all received. Fullness simply means there's no limit. It's inexhaustible. There's no depletion. There's no limit to the truth and the grace that are found in Christ. There's no running out. There's no empty warning. There's no red light that comes on. There's, there's only infinite abundance. And this means that you can never exhaust the riches of the fullness of Christ. Because as we were just saying, he is very God of very God. And so he is infinite in his grace and in his truth. So you'll never come to Jesus. What's this mean in practical terms? You will never come to Jesus for mercy. You'll never come to Jesus in your need and be met with the words, Sorry, I'm all out of mercy today. Come back tomorrow. With that idea of fullness in mind, let's, let's think about Jesus full of grace and truth. This is something we need to appreciate about him, that he is full of grace and truth. Not one or the other, not one at the expense of the other, but both perfectly. Think about it this way. Have you, have you ever met someone who has a commitment to grace with no commitment to the truth? Or think about it the other way. Have you ever met someone or known someone who's all about telling the truth but lacks grace? You know what I'm, you know what I'm talking about? 
Grace without truth is cheap. It's spineless. It's sentimental. And at the end of the day, it's not even grace. Because for grace to be grace, there has to be truth. Grace without truth, folks, envision Jesus walking around Galilee proclaiming, you know, love is love. Never saying anything challenging, affirming everyone he talks to. He's just nice all of the time. That's grace without truth. But truth without grace ends up being what? Harsh, cold, callous, cranky, unfeeling, usually very arrogant. And that's an equally profound distortion of the truth revealed in Jesus. These folks love the Jesus who you know, rebukes people, blasts hypocrites, cleanses temples, drives out the money changers with a whip. And if you try to challenge someone who's like this and say, hey, you know, you need to, you're kind of being a jerk. <laughs> Can you stop it? They'll say something like, you know, take it up with Jesus. I'm just being like him. Right? And they don't realize how unlike him they really are. In contrast to those two kinds of distortions, John says... Jesus is full of both grace and truth. Again, not one or the other, not cheap grace or harsh and unfailing truth, but both in perfect harmony. Jesus, the Jesus who welcomed sinners, tax collectors, the Jesus who, who sat at table and, and ate with them. He, he had compassion on the crowds, he fed the hungry, he healed the sick, he raised the dead, he welcomed children into his arms and blessed them. He was gentle and kind. He was, in short, full of grace all of the time. And at the same time, he was full of truth. He condemned religious leaders for being liars and hypocrites. He lovingly warned people about hell. He talked about judgment. He told people to stop sinning. He told his disciples to pick up their cross and follow him. He set standards and demanded that his followers give up everything in order to follow him. And when you think about it, friends, isn't this precisely the kind of savior we need? It, it is. The God-man who is full of both grace and truth. We need, we need a Savior who says to us, Come to me, all you who are wearied and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And don't you need a Jesus who offers you that? God, God isn't saying to you, Come on. Why don't you get your act together? Do better. Let's see how you keep my rules first. Then we'll talk about that grace stuff. No, Jesus says to Needy sinners, come to me. It's an open invitation. If, if you hear my voice, come today. Come with all of your failure. Come with all of your pain, all of your sorrow, all of your sin. Come repenting and believing, and I will give you rest. We, we need a Savior who offers us grace like that, don't we? And at the very same time, we need a Savior who tells us the truth. Because we live in a world of lies, and let's be frank, we are very capable of deceiving ourselves and offering ourselves all kinds of false assurances. As hard as it may be to step into the light 
Jesus assures us the truth will set you free. We need a Savior who, who is loving and honest enough to say to us, everyone who practices sin, everyone who makes a pattern and you know, lifestyle out of living in sin, Jesus says, is a slave to sin. We need a Jesus who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. We need a Savior who is gracious and honest enough to tell us the truth about ourselves. Right? That you, you are not okay the way that you are. But come to me, and I will be everything that you need. Come to me, and I will forgive you. I will cleanse you. I will begin to change your life. We need the truth of Jesus to say, you are objectively guilty, but I came to take your sin away. Let's go to the next phrase in, in verse 16. Not only truth and grace, John goes on to say, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Jesus is full of grace and truth, and Jesus is full, and, and from him we receive grace upon grace. But what does that mean? Some translations say grace replacing grace. Some say grace instead of grace. There's a lot of discussion about how to best translate this. But I actually, I, I think John tells us what he means in verse 17, where he goes on to say, For the law was given through Moses, grace and tr truth came through Jesus Christ. In other words, the grace upon grace John is talking about has to be understood in terms of how Jesus fulfills the scriptures. John is talking about the grace promised in the law being fully realized and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Think about it this way. With, with the law of Moses, right, all that came through, through Moses, it was gracious for God to dwell in the midst of his people in the tabernacle, for the presence of God to be with his people is an undeserved gift. But it's grace upon grace for God to come down and dwell among his people, not, not in the goat skin of the tabernacle, but in the very flesh of our humanity. Grace upon grace. This is what John means. The law was itself a revelation of grace, but in Jesus we have grace in the flesh. Grace following, followed by greater grace. The sacrificial system was a type of grace, but the death of Jesus on the cross once and for all was grace upon grace. This is what John wants us to see. That Jesus is the very climax and fulfillment of Israel's story. All of redemptive history comes rushing to Jesus like rivers to the deep blue sea. And that brings us to the very last word I want us to think about in John's prologue. It's, it's, it's in the very last verse, verse 18. Look at how John concludes. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Now, that word known is the one that I want you to focus on for a moment. The son who is now at the father's side, he has made him known. Again, the Greek helps us here understand what John is saying. 
the last word that's translated known is, comes from the Greek word from which we get our English word exegesis. Right, that word we use to talk about drawing the meaning out of a text and, and disclosing it. Making it known, explaining it, revealing what's being said. That's the same root word John uses to describe Jesus making the Father known. And so we could say, we could say that Jesus is the exegesis of the Father. That he has come to reveal God in that way, to disclose God, to make him known, to make known to us the heart of God the Father, to disclose the fatherly love and affection of God for you. That'll preach, won't it? And we're, we're going to come back to this verse tonight, so I'm not going to say much about it right now. We're actually just going to look at this verse in particular during our lessons and carols this evening. But I want us to end by thinking about the enormity of what John is saying here. Jesus makes God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, known. Can you imagine saying that about anyone else? You know, hey, I want you to meet my buddy. He's a good friend of mine. And yeah, he makes God known. When you, actually, when you look at him, you look at God. You know, what did you say to that? You, you got a few screws loose in your head. You need to go get yourself checked out. It's no wonder why you know, C.S. Lewis famously said that Jesus is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. Right? It's an enormous claim. This is where John ends. When you see him, you see the Father. See who he is, see what he's about. And this is where John ends his prologue. So just, just let's wrap up with this. How can you know God? It's an important question, isn't it? How can you really know what God is like? How can you know his will for your life? The answer from John again and again and again is Jesus, 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 Jesus. You know, there's a reason why this, the, the Sunday school answer, Jesus is always right, because it is, because it is. Look at him, John is saying. Listen to him. God has made himself known in the words and the works of his son. So listen to him and live. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your wonderful son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who makes you known. Uh, please give us minds to understand who he is, hearts to receive, wills to obey him, and open our lips to sing your praise to our triune God, Father, Spirit, Son. Amen.